I don't, most of you probably aren't old enough to remember Andy of Mayberry. Uh, this is not going to be a good morning. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's so simple. Uh, Andy, Andy Griffith show. If you're nodding your head, you're as old as I am, or then some. So, sorry about that. I know a lot of you aren't old enough to remember. Andy of Mayberry in the 50s and 60s was black and white, and I think got color at some point. But you know, there are these down-home, homespun stories. My wife Kathy. They're corny. Kathy loves these stories, you know. And one of her favorites we watched a little bit of yesterday. Uh, Opie, little Opie, you know, is growing up and he's got to work to get his allowance. He's got to clean the garage and do these things. And there's a new kid in town who rides up on his flashy bicycle and is trying to inform Opie about the facts of life, that your dad owes you. This allowance. You don't work for allowance. That's what's allowed a child. You don't work for that. It's allowed. It's allowed you. You shouldn't be working for this. And and uh, Arnold uh, Arnold Winkler, this little fella, he's got it all figured out. You know, the world is his clamshell, and his dad is his banker, and you know everything's coming his way. And he's trying to inform Opie about the facts of life, how you can get everything you want. And you know, Arnold is not the kind of kid you want your little ones hanging out with. So. Life owes me a living. He runs old ladies down on his bicycle on the on the sidewalks. He lies, he cheats, he breaks the law. And eventually, of course he's doing this, his bicycle is impounded. And so he 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 threatens Sheriff Taylor. I'm gonna go home and get my dad, I'm gonna bring him down here. He's gonna take care of you and this stuff. And so Simon Winkler comes down with his boy. And he's saying, hey, you know, he's just a kid, can't you see, the poor little guy, you know. And Arnold's going through his routine, he's crying. And, but, but then he lets the cat out of the bag because he says that he would rather have his dad locked up in jail than lose his new bicycle. <laughs> well, suddenly dad's eyes are open and he realizes something about this little monster he's helped create. And so Sheriff Taylor looks at him knowingly, father to father, and says, you know, we've got a, a woodshed behind the office here. And uh, Dad's eyes light up, a, a real old-fashioned woodshed. And for you younger ones, this means the place you go to get your spanking. This, the woodshed has pieces of wood. You get your spanking there. Uh, so Opie's witnessing all this. Little Ope is witnessing all this. And Simon and his boy, they're, they're headed out back. And Opie says to Andy, is Arnold going to get a spanking? And Andy says, well, don't you think he deserves it? And Opie says, well, I don't want to say. After all, he's one of my own kind. <laughs> sort of, what does he deserve and what am I willing to fess up for him? This is a little too close to comfort. Uh, how do you feel... When someone else is getting their just desserts, how do you feel when someone else is getting their just desserts? Justice. And I don't, I don't mean something that they haven't earned or deserved. I mean just judgment, righteous judgment. How, how do you feel? And just ask yourself that as we look through the text this morning. We'll be in Genesis 18. Hopefully you've got study sheets there. Genesis 18, verses 22 through 33 this morning. 
This whole passage, uh, Genesis 18, Genesis 19, we'll look at later. This is one of the key sections in the Bible that deals with God's righteous judgment. And I confess I still cringe a bit uh, as I consider these passages uh, because like Opie, I feel so much the weight of the judgment that could come to me. Yeah, for good, Bill. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, that uh, I get it that my oh, good thanks yeah unlike Mr. Opie I, I'm feeling my kinship to Arnold and judgment feels pretty close too close for comfort and I hope it does for you too this morning as we look at this passage and as we'll look at one later in Genesis 19. But to catch you up, if you remember in Genesis 18, God had taken on an appearance, I'm assuming that's the Lord Jesus, and with two angels had come down to visit Abraham and Sarah and had enjoyed some hospitality, had a meal, informed them again Sarah would indeed have a son within the year, and then told Abraham a little bit about what was going on in God's mind and the secondary reason they were there we're going to go down and see if the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is really as great as we have heard. And that's where we're picking up this morning. Then the men turned away from there. These would be the two angels who will head down to Sodom. We'll see them in chapter 19. Went down from there toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Let me pause just long enough to say, definitions sometimes are helpful here. Righteous, biblical usage, just, lawful, or right. Or generally we would say someone who's in right standing with God. It doesn't mean moral perfection on their own account. Just those whose lives are characterized by a right relationship with God, doing the right kinds of things. Wicked, I'll mention a little bit uh, yet. Wicked is a term we don't use very often. And the biblical usage is guilty of sin, guilty of crime, hostile to God. The scripture, by the way, uses the term wicked interchangeably with evil. These are terms we, we don't use a lot. And in our mind, there are very few wicked or evil people around. You've sort of got to be a Hitler, a Stalin, a Mao before you achieve this status. But the truth is in biblical usage, wicked and evil are applied to a lot of people, a lot of Arnolds in the world, a lot of people just like you and I. So think about that as we go through. Don't think about people that are so unlike you, you can't relate. Think about people that actually have a lot in common with us when we think about those who are wicked. Verse 24, Abram speaking to God, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. You will, will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abram replied, Now, behold, I venture to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes, Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Would you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose 
40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. I'll speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. The first point we'll look at is from verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now, this is both a question and a statement from Abraham to God. God will deal justly. God must deal justly. Abraham's concern here, and there's three things I think going through his mind when he knows God's come, he knows about Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham knows about Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to go down personally, at least through these angels, and he's going to check it out. And I think we infer three things about Abraham's knowledge or thoughts based on what God's going to do. The first is this, God would find Sodom and Gomorrah to be as wicked as their outcry had been. Abraham knows this. He knows what kind of a place they are. He knows because of their great wickedness, the second point would be, he knows that their wickedness is so great that it will require God's intervention in judgment. Abraham assumes the facts will be confirmed and the facts are so overwhelming there will be no doubt God must bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the third thing he knows is this, while these are truly wicked places, there is a righteous minority within them. So Abraham knows all this, which is why he interacts with God the way he does. The place is truly wicked. Its wickedness will require your judgment, but there is a righteous minority within it. God says to, Abraham says to God, God, you are just and you cannot act in a manner that's less than just and right. And so there's two, two, sort of two sides of this. One is the wickedness itself will require God's judgment. And the flip side is, Lord, you can't treat the righteous and the wicked as if they're the same. If you go down there, you're going to see that it's wicked. And if you just sweep it away, that would be just on one hand towards the wicked, but it wouldn't be just towards the righteous. And Abraham says, Lord, as the judge of all the earth, I know that you cannot do anything that's unjust. The judge of all the earth must do right or do justly. It's a moral universe, and Abraham knows that. And there's a moral imperative on a moral God to do justice. He can't do otherwise. This is sort of an appeal. This is an appeal that, God, I know you, you must do justly. I spoke at a funeral, uh, sort of a remembrance ceremony, actually, a year or so ago for a guy who had made it clear he was not a Christian. And yet he had a lot of Christian friends. And, you know, you're trying to help people come to grips with the loss of a young guy who said, I'm not a Christian, that's, that's not me, that's not my life. And as a Christian, you understand that he has died apart from Christ, apart from hope, apart from an eternity and bliss in heaven with the Lord. And you're trying to put this in context for folks who are struggling. And this was the verse I came to. 
And I said, listen, apart from anything else, this much I know, the God of all the earth will do justice. There's a lot of things. I don't know if there was a, a pre-death conversion. I don't, I don't pretend to know what goes on in someone else's mind before they die between them and the Lord. But I said this from Genesis 18, this much I know, God has done and will do nothing less than justly by this young man's life. Absolutely can't do otherwise. The God of the universe cannot act in a way that's unjust. You know, sort of on a more menial frame of reference or life, sometimes we look at our life and we say to ourselves, God isn't fair. God isn't fair. If God loved me or if God was fair, this thing wouldn't be happening. But guys, the truth is God can never be less than just. Fair isn't always the same as just in our minds. We confuse those two. God cannot be less than just. He cannot do less than righteousness. And Abraham knows that. And so that's the basis of his appeal. God, I know your justice is going to require judgment on wickedness and evil and sin, but you can't treat the righteous like the wicked in that necessary judgment that's coming. You know, we live in a time just very similar in my view to those in Sodom and Gomorrah, which, which is uh, days like Isaiah. Isaiah 5.20, I don't know if this strikes you. Sometimes I read the headlines and I think of this verse out of Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness that you'll read about judgments made in courthouses or the court of public opinion, and you'll say they're calling evil good and good evil. And it's a time or a place or a culture or a people that's lost their moral compass or their sense of right and wrong, that some things really are absolutely right and some things really are absolutely wrong. And frankly, as I'm going through this text too, I remembered being in a a conference setting a few years ago and a pastor was speaking about the city we were in, a nice, clean, Midwestern city. And he talked about this wicked city. And I felt assaulted slightly. Clean, Midwestern city, sort of Bible Belt kind of a place, you know. What do you mean wicked? Well, he meant wicked along the lines of, of the biblical call the, that... While there are a righteous minority perhaps there, the city in general was not characterized by those who sought God's favor, sought to live life on God's terms, His way. And when I use the term wicked today, it still assaults my ears a little bit. What do you mean wicked? What do you mean evil? And again, if you just do a very brief study, you'll see, I think the term wicked or the... the uh, the Greek and Hebrew terms used about 75 times. Uh, God talks about it a lot. And it's not just about Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the thing. If we define evil and wicked to mean everybody but us, we're sort of missing the point. That God looks at the earth, He looks at your heart and at mine. And sort of at, at rock bottom, the baseline of who and what we are, apart from our conversion, we're wicked and we're evil because we don't put... God and His things first. We've lost our moral compass, our sense of right and wrong. And think about this. The God of the universe, the God Abraham is interacting with in this story, He's perfect. 
There's no defect in him. So he's holy and he's righteous and he's loving and he's merciful and he's compassionate. So that if we're at odds with this kind of a God, what does that say about us? Do you see that? If God is perfect, if we value compassion, and most of us does, God is the epitome. God is the source of compassion. If we're at odds with the God of compassion, what does that say about us? Where are we at if we're at odds with the God of perfection? Moral perfection, beauty, loveliness, compassion. Anything good you can think of comes from God. His nature, His creative acts. So that if I as an individual or if we as a people are at odds with a perfect God, we are in fact evil. We are wicked. We are not that far removed from the Arnolds of the world as Opie could feel and as Abraham feels in this story. As you'll see, he intercedes for them here to to the tail end of the story this morning. But if we're at odds with God, if our lifestyle isn't sent to be about God's view of what's right and wrong, we are, by the biblical definitions, we are evil and we are wicked and it can't be otherwise. In Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, Kent used these verses when we talked about authority, and I'm not looking at them so much for authority as for the fact that in verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13, God says that the government is his representative and that it's to do two things. And in these two things that the government is to do as God's representative, it reflects God's view and Abraham's view of God of being righteous towards the righteous and the wicked. So in Romans 13, Paul says there, rulers aren't a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. The righteous are praised by the government authority. The righteous are not brought into judgment. They're praised. It continues though, But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. You see, when God says governments are here to represent him, he says that governments are to reflect his sense of justice, of righteousness. And part of that means you don't judge the righteous like the wicked. The righteous get praise and the wicked get judgment that's exactly what you see in genesis 18 it's the same thing god you're just i know you must bring judgment on the wicked but lord also because i know you're just you cannot bring that same judgment on the righteous can't happen abraham knew that god was just and that just character could not do otherwise than judge wickedness and make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked before we leave this point let me say a couple of things we often feel safe if, uh, from God's judgment. And this is, this is a good thing. But you know, the difference, the ultimate difference, there may be a lifestyle difference and there should be between those who are called righteous today, those Christians and those who are not. There should be a lifestyle difference. But guys, the ultimate difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the ones under God's judgment and the ones under blessing, the ones who will forever be in heaven and the ones who will not be in heaven with Christ, is that those in heaven, those who are free to receive God's blessings, have simply accepted the righteousness that's been offered them in Jesus Christ. We are otherwise of the same stuff. 
that those under God's curse are. There's no inherent difference between any of us with the rest of us other than those who get God's blessing. Just like Abraham in Genesis 15, he believed God. And through faith in God's promise, God said, you have my righteousness based on the future payment of Jesus Christ for Abraham's sins and his past payment for our sins. So I confess, every time I read these judgment passages, I, I, I'm uncomfortable in the sense that I realize how close judgment was to me. And I wouldn't wish God's judgment on anyone. And Abraham doesn't either, as you'll see here in a minute. If you've already trusted Christ, if you know that you've passed out of judgment into life, that's what John's Gospel says, those who've trusted Christ have passed out from underneath God's judgment into life, then we ought to be living our lives thanking God every day, morning, noon, and night. God, thank you that you saved me. God, thank you that I've passed out of judgment into life because Jesus died for my sins. And if you're not sure, if you have not yet, embrace Christ and his death for your sins, you need to do so. It is your only hope of passing out of judgment. God's righteous. He must judge the wicked. We, apart from Christ, are wicked. Embrace Christ. Accept his salvation for you and live a thankful life. God is just and never less than that. The second point is this, and this is one that I find great comfort in. Though God's righteousness ultimately requires judgment on the wicked, God is willing to suspend judgment for the sake of the righteous. God suspends judgment for the sake of the righteous. You see that in verse 26. God says there, yes, I will spare the whole place on their account. If I find 50, Abraham, you've asked, if I find 50 there, I'll pass over judgment on the whole place. If there's a little righteous minority, I'll do that. Six times in six verses, God says that the wicked will be spared because of the presence of the righteous, even if they're this very small minority. The mere presence of the righteous means the wicked will at least temporarily not fall under God's judgment. This is a good thing. Sometimes we wonder why Christians are in the places they are. You know, sometimes like Lot in Sodom, we say, man, you should never have gone there. Wrong, wrong choice. You know, went down to Sodom, left Uncle Abraham where the blessing was, went down to Sodom. But other times Christians are in the place of God's choosing. And I think sometimes it is just for this. It's because their very presence allows God to withhold judgment. That sometimes is why Christians are in the places they are. You know, most Christians know, and Kent's going through the Sermon on the Mount, and he'll be bringing these up, a couple of these verses, but Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You know, you're to have this preservative effect on the culture you, you live in. You should have a, an impact on the place and the people you live, and you, you hang your hat. You're like salt. You preserve the culture around you. Or he says, you're the light of the world. Christians, God's people always meant to have this enlightening influence on the world around us. And I think most of us are, are aware of this, called to influence and to be salt and light. In uh, Paul's language in Philippians 2, verse 15, a really uh, graphic picture. Paul says there, you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. This would be like Abraham in his day. 
children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. In fact, in this language, uh, the Greek is scolios. These, these people you live with, they're bent over. They're hunched figures and you stand straight and tall as God's people seeking God's things. And we should have this impact that we're lights in the world we live in. We're salt. We have this preservative effect. But beyond that, the mere presence of God's righteous one has this at least delaying effect on God's judgment. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. You remember Matthew 13 is a chapter filled with uh, parables. And in this one, Jesus says there was a landowner and he went out and he sowed his field with seed, with wheat, let's say. And sometime in the night, his enemy comes and throws in weeds. And no one knows the better. But when they come up, initially they look the same. The tares, the weeds, and the wheat, they look the same. But as they grow, the, the wheat, of course, starts putting on grain, buds of grain, and the weeds don't. And the guys tending the field come to the master and they say, hey, master, something's happened because there are weeds in your field. And he says, well, an enemy has done this. And so the workers say, makes sense, would you like us to pull the weeds out? And the field owner says, don't do that. Because... In pulling the weeds out, you may, in effect, though you don't mean to, you may harm the wheat. So we're not going to separate them out now. We're going to let them grow up together. And when it's time to harvest, then we'll make that separation. But if we do so sooner, there's a good chance that we will bring harm to the crops we want to grow freely. So in this story, in this parable, Jesus is saying in part, uh, he makes it plain, the kingdom of heaven, sometimes the righteous and the wicked, they're mixed together. And he doesn't come in in judgment because judgment itself could harm the ones Christ has already died to save. And so he says, I'm not going to go in there and do that judgment work now. I'm going to wait. Things are going to grow up and we'll get to that later. But right now, because of the presence of the wheat, the weeds grow up unhindered. And sometimes it's merely the presence of the righteous. And Christians today, in their places in the world, and I think in the United States today, the mere presence of the righteous sometimes is what God honors in delaying judgment on places and people and times that otherwise would require it. The presence of the righteous. The third point, and the one I'd like to hang my hat on this morning, and, and I hope you remember if nothing else, is the way Abraham intercedes here with God. Um, it's my conviction, and I'll try and be careful that I don't say more than the Scripture says here this morning, but as I read this story, I believe that in part God communicated to Abraham what he did because he in fact wanted Abraham to respond the way he did. He wanted to elicit compassion from Abraham and he wanted Abraham to stand up and say, Lord, slow down, hold on. If Abraham was only concerned for Lot, he could have said something like, Lord, would you just get my nephew and his family out of there first? If all he was concerned in was the righteous being preserved, and that is his argument, Lord, you can't treat the righteous like the wicked. 
He could have said, would you just take them out? Which is, in fact, what God does. Abraham whittles this number down. You know, it's great. It's a great story, isn't it? I mean, just his interaction with God is great. Wow, you know, starting at 50 and 45 and 40 and 30. It's a great story, isn't it? And the dynamics, they're fun. But why does Abraham go down to 10? You know, 50, it's a city, right? These are cities. There's a lot of people there, you know. So why does 50... 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, why? You know, I think he's going down to a number so low that he thinks it's a given there's at least 10 in this wicked city and all of Sodom and Gomorrah will be spared judgment. I think he's actually pleading in the name of the righteous. I think he's pleading for the whole place. And I think he thinks it's a given. He's counting up. You can see this going through his head. Okay, Lot and his wife, two daughters... They're engaged. The son-in-laws have got to be good guys, right? There's at least six. Surely in this city, there's four more. There's got to be. So I think he's actually going down to a number in which he thinks there will be at least 10. And therefore, all of Sodom and Gomorrah will be spared judgment. See, I think though his case rests on pleading for God treating the righteous like the righteous, it's actually also for the benefit of those he knows otherwise are subject to judgment right now, real soon. And so he enters into this dialogue with God. This, it almost, it's almost bartering, isn't it? How about this? Well, would you take that? And if that, then this. What about this? You know, how, how low can we go? I think at the end of the day, this is actually not just the preservation from Abraham's perspective, not just the preservation of the righteous. I think he's actually trying to forestall God's judgment on the wicked. The, those he knows that he believes actually have already incurred God's righteous judgment. He's trying to delay the whole thing. That's my take. And with that, I think Abraham is actually evidencing exactly what God wanted him to. Uh, Again, I think as Christians, when we read judgment passages, it should be with fear and trembling. Because apart from Christ, that's us. Not because of anything we've done do we escape judgment. Apart from Christ, that's us. And Abraham has empathy for the wicked. And I think God wanted him to. And let me just share why. Just a few verses from a couple other places in the Scriptures. In Ezekiel 22, verse 30, Ezekiel lives in a day of judgment. It's the judgment of God on Israel. Ezekiel's one of the captives. He's taken as a young man to Babylon. And Jerusalem's still standing while he's in Babylon writing. And, and he lives right through the destruction of Jerusalem. He sees visions while the temple's still there. And then he sees the end of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. But he lives through it. These are days of judgment. God's righteous judgment on his people, on Israel. And one of the things God says about that time and that place is this. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found none. God's a righteous judge. He must bring judgment. But he says, I looked in my own backyard for a single righteous person who would live righteously and pursue me in my things, and therefore, in the right spirit, in a relationship with me, with me would implore me on behalf of Israel. And he said there wasn't one left. There was no one there to do what I wanted, to intercede 
on behalf of these people so that I could forestall judgment. Now, Israel deserves judgment richly. And if you read Ezekiel, you see all the idolatry and the sin, the leaders had sold out, you name it. God says there was no one there to do it. But that's what I wanted. God is just, but He's also merciful. And you see both of these aspects of His character displayed in these stories. He's not a cold-hearted judge sentencing people to death. He's a compassionate Savior as well. So also, you read in Ezekiel 33.11, by the way, if you interact with someone who tells you God's small-minded and judge, judgmental, spiteful, Ezekiel 33.11 is a great verse. God says there, as I live, declares the Lord. This is God swearing, so to speak, by himself, by his life. He couldn't lie if he wanted to, but now he's taking an oath, as it were. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. In a day of judgment, God is pleading with Israel to repent because he doesn't want them to die and be judged. I take no pleasure, God says, in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. I'm not a mean, spiteful little God getting some kind of jolly out of causing pain or bringing judgment on people who really deserve it. It gives me no pleasure whatsoever. In Jonah's day, the city of Nineveh, I'm not sure what they would, be, they would compare to today, a violent city, a wicked city. The Ninevites were known for their extreme cruelty in a cruel era of the world. They, <laughs> by anybody's standards, they probably deserve God's judgment. And what's God's attitude? He sends this prophet named Jonah to go warn them they're in trouble. That they are facing God's judgment in 40 days for their wickedness. Why does God send Jonah? Because if all, he did, if all he wanted was judgment, to judge rightly, all he had to do was go judge them. But he sends Jonah. And in the book of Jonah that bears his name, Jonah is not the hero. Jonah is the anti-hero. Because why? Because he's a guy who doesn't care about those Ninevites who are under the just judgment of God. He doesn't care. And the whole book is pointing out God saving the Gentiles, enemies of Israel. That was his heart. They turned and they repented. That's what God wanted. That's what God wants today. It's what God wanted in Abraham's day. God does, takes no delight in the death of the wicked. And then in Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22, in Isaiah's day, same thing. And there God says, with judgment impending, He says, there's no other gods besides me, a righteous God. God says, I'm righteous, nothing less. I'm just and I do justly, I do justice. And a Savior, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. I'm God and there's no other. I'm righteous and I'm a Savior. And if you'll turn to me, you'll be saved. Because that's what I'm after. And lastly, Isaiah 28 verse 21. This is brief. Uh, I grant you. And this sounds like a tangent. It's not. Uh, there God says that He, God will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, his work, his extraordinary work. Uh, this is referencing back to the days of Joshua when God brought judgment on the armies. 
that had surrounded the Gibeonites in the land of promise. God extended the day and, and wiped out these armies. And in Isaiah, he says that judgment is his strange or unusual task. If you think of God primarily as a judge on the wicked, you've got it wrong. It's not that he's not a judge. It's not that he won't judge. But when God speaks of himself, he says judgment is not that which most clearly, most fully identifies who I am and what I'm like. God can't do less than justice, but it's not how he describes himself as what is typical of his heart, his nature, and his character. I'm a just God and I'm a Savior. I delight in compassion, loving kindness, and mercy. In fact, when you read Matthew's gospel, you'll see Jesus says this twice. Have you never read? I delight in compassion to religious leaders, to Pharisees who thought they were in right standing with God. Have you never read? I delight in mercy and compassion. And that's the heart of the God we serve. So when God brings this up to Abraham, I think Abraham's responding exactly the way God wanted him to. He's representing God's very nature of compassion, even towards those who richly deserve judgment. And if you think of it, who in this room on your own doesn't richly deserve judgment? If we point at others and say they deserve judgment, you've got to be so careful. Because I do too. And you do too. There's no one here who doesn't. Opie Taylor. There's some deep theology there in Andy of Mayberry. You know, I don't want to say too much about the judgment Arnold deserves because it's a little too close to home. He's like me. I'm like him. And even though I don't live the way he lives, I get it. I, I have this empathy for him because he's just like me. Not a lot different between the two of us. Let me wind down with this. On this intercession, Abraham representing God's compassion here, as I take it. Abraham intercedes for God, for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he does so three things here. Uh, He does so boldly. If I was standing before God, I don't think I'd tell God what he could or couldn't do. And Abraham does. Lord, you can't treat the righteous like the wicked. Lord, you must act differently towards the righteous and the wicked. I'd be trembling. Abraham's bold. He's really bold here. Now he's doing so because he knows God's nature and character, but he's bold. This is the creator of the universe. He knows who God is. This is Yahweh. And he's bold in his intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's bold, but it's a boldness based on God's very nature and character. He also does so, though, very humbly. Uh, Verse 27, Lord, I know I'm dust and ashes. You're the God of heaven and earth. I'm just... I'm mere mortal. I'm dust. I'm ashes. Verse 30, Lord, don't get angry with me. Please be patient with me. Verse 32, let me speak just once more, please. You know, if you'll allow me. Very bold on one hand, totally humble on the other. And the third is really persistent. Uh, Six times. Lord, 50, uh, what about 45? Lord, what about 40? What about really persistent? When you think about interceding for others, and I'm thinking especially others that you think fall under God's judgment, boldness based on God's own nature of compassion and mercy and that we know God takes no delight in the death of the wicked and wants to show compassion. uh, This is a good thing. Boldness and humility and persistence. This is one conversation, but in persistence for us, I'm assuming that we would pray 
more than once, over time, persistence over time. When I think of this today, and there's been a lot in the news just recently, uh, 9-11 was yesterday, nine years after the destruction of the Twin Towers and thousands of lives. Uh, Abraham was praying for people, frankly, he did not like. You you remember back in Genesis 14, Abraham's not going to take a thing from Sodom and Gomorrah when he's redeemed them from the armies that have come in and captured them. He doesn't want anything. He knows what they're like. It's not that he likes them. It's not that he has an affinity for them, sort of that they're meritorious or that they're folks he wants to be around. These would in his day sort of been the enemy. And that's who he's interceding for. When we think about who God's called us to intercede for, it's not the righteous generally that need our intercession, is it? It's the unrighteous. It's the wicked and the evil. So when we're thinking about looking like Father Abraham here, it's the unrighteous and the wicked. It's those who don't know God that we should be praying for. So it's the atheists. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, well-known Brit. Uh, can't remember the name of his book right now. I'm an atheist. In fact, he said recently he's got cancer, maybe terminal. He said, if I convert before I die, you'll know the cancer reached my brain. That's his view, facing death. But he said... But if you want to pray for me, go ahead. Here's an atheist. You know what? He needs intercession. Abraham's kind of intercession. We think of, guys, the world has billions of Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists who are wicked and evil by biblical definitions who live under God's judgment and will do so unless... They receive God's mercy in receiving Jesus Christ's payment for their sins. Those are the folks we need to be praying for. The atheists among us, the folks who live a lifestyle characterized by the rejection of the God of heaven and earth. Those are the ones that need our prayer. It's, we can pray, and by all means we should, for each other and for our family and friends. That's a little different. This is a story about God bringing Abraham into a discussion and Abraham taking, in a sense, God's role of compassion and mercy and asking on behalf of the wicked and the evil that God's judgment might be suspended, at least temporarily, at least temporarily. Ultimately, it can't be. Ultimately, God's judgment will be satisfied too. When you go home and on the bottom of your study sheet, it just says, who who would God want you to intercede for? You know, if all we do is talk about these things on Sunday morning, it goes nowhere. It's, it's fruitless. Who does God want me to intercede for? Who does God want me praying for? Who does God want you praying for? You know, all that lies between us and God's judgment is Jesus Christ on the cross. And by the way, Jesus on the cross is the ultimate evidence that God is just and he will judge the wicked. When Jesus takes on our sin, his father kills him, slays him. He's the offering, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on the cross, dying for our sins. God will judge. If he judged Jesus, guys, he'll judge anyone. But also, of course, Christ on the cross and in the resurrection is the ultimate proof of God's mercy and compassion. God is not just a just God. He's also a Savior. And that's the only reason any of us have hope. So Opie had something right. Arnold's a bad kid. Arnold's done the wrong stuff. 
But I don't want to say too much about it because I realize how close I am to Arnold. And Abraham fills that same role here. Lord, they're not that different than me. Would you suspend judgment? Let's pray. Father, I am just uh, struck and humbled again that the only thing that lies between us and your righteous, appropriate judgment is the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thanks for dying for our sins. Thanks for shedding your blood to cover our guilt. Lord, help us to have the kind of empathy that Abraham displayed here, the kind of compassion that you mentioned throughout the Scriptures that, Lord, you are not only just... You're a Savior as well. Lord, that's all at your cost. Help us to honor you, Lord Jesus, in your offering by interceding for those who don't yet know you, on playing the role of Abraham, on coming alongside you, Lord, in your role as mediator to, to act, to pray, to intercede on behalf of those who right now lie under your righteous judgment. Help us, Lord, to take this to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.